Chapter 1 Where Did Our Love Go? People used to call me Mr. Gig. They don't anymore. Student Entertainments Officer, Roadie, DJ Support Act, Promoter, Gig Reviewer, Punter. For much of my adult life, live music has been everything. Nothing else getting a look in. Where others' lives are defined by the performances of underachieving football teams, mine is measured by gigs. Years are not recalled by births, deaths, marriages or relegation dogfights, but by other equally crucial criteria, such as the size of the salsa orchestra David Byrne brought to Brixton Academy in 1992, or by how many times I could see Gorky's psychotic monkey in a single month in 1998 and still clock in at work at 9am the next day. I managed six. First dates weren't conducted in the back row of the movies. They always took place in the front row of some gig, usually in a less-than-palatial dive in the arse end of town. Deciding to visit friends at weekends was always determined by when a certain band was playing in the provincial outpost a particular pal was holed up in, and whenever love broke down, I always had the sympathetic shoulder of live music to cry on. Whenever I bumped into someone I hadn't seen for a while, they wouldn't bother asking about my health, my family, or my opinions on the government of the day. They'd cut to the chase. So, what good gigs have you been to lately? Live music was my identity, the context people unfailingly put me in. To them, I seemed to operate outside the normal parameters of everyday life, floating around in my own loudly amplified universe. I was an addict. I could go a maximum of four or five days between gigs without suffering from withdrawal. Usually it was much less, and it never mattered where the action was the grotty upstairs room of a pub, or the velveteen seats of a municipal concert hall, the sticky-floored students' union bar, or the soggy lower paddock of a festival-hosting dairy farm. I wasn't fussy. I just couldn't stay away. How did I get here? Slow off the mark when it came to meeting girls and learning to drive, but it was the opposite with music. First out of the blocks everyone else eating my cinders. When you grow up several miles past the back of beyond, in a coastal town they forgot to close down, you need something after all. And I found music. Or music found me, nice and early. By the second year of junior school, I knew the lyrics of each and every ELO song and also had a little playground sideline in facsimile autographs of the band's tightly-permed leader, Jeff Lynne. At secondary school, I was never without an hour-price carrier bag in my clutches, the badge of adolescent musical obsession. A different day, a different LP. I spent seven long years borrowing and lending records with the few other kindred spirits in my class, those who also saw more worth in exchanging the factory records back catalogue than in swapping figurine panini football stickers. But while the record collection grew and grew, I remained a stranger to live music until I went to university. We were barely on speaking terms. I'd love to regale you with romantic stories of bunking out of the bedroom window to go and see The Clash at the age of twelve, but I can't. 
There aren't any. Nor can I tell tales of running off to fanatically trail Aztec camera or orange juice around the country in my school uniform. Far from it. For the unrepentant music addict I considered myself to be, the total number of gigs I went to before I left home for university was shameful. Here I'm tallying up proper gigs, not those featuring a shoddy third-rate bunch of amateurs in a pub of a Tuesday night, but real concerts with tickets and roadies and lights and dry ice and support acts. And in the better-heeled auditoria, the opportunity to buy ice cream in a tub at half-time. The number of these proper gigs wouldn't have troubled the digits of one hand. They won't trouble you for long, either. They were. Prefab Sprout, Portsmouth Guildhall. 6th of November, 1985.